If you've been going through perimenopause or menopause, you know the struggle to find comfort in your body is real. No matter what you try, no matter what you do, you're just feeling off. That's why I'm so excited that I found Hormone Harmony. It's not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause or postmenopause, it's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media and a bottle of Hormone Harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making your life easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. And the best part, the biggest benefit, is feeling like yourself again. That's what women mention over and over in their reviews, and there are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. So check with your doctor before beginning any other supplement or strategy to address your health care. And if you're curious and want to give it a try, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code GETNAKED at the checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code GETNAKED for 15% off today. You're listening to Modern Intimacy, a show about mental health, sex, relationships, and the private things we need to talk about more publicly. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri. As a licensed psychologist, certified sex therapist, certified sex addiction therapist, and packed trained couples therapist, I help people live more fulfilled lives by shattering stigma, erasing shame, and building connections. It's no secret that we live in a society that compartmentalizes mental health and sex from our everyday lives. On this show, we're going to change that, and we'll do it by getting curious together. In this podcast, I'll invite you to join me as I investigate the relationship between sex, mental health, relationships, and modern society. In each episode, it's my goal to provide safe, smart, dimensional, and practical answers to those complex questions you've been wondering about. Head on over to modernintimacy.com slash podcast for show notes and resources, or to submit a question or topic you'd like me to explore in future episodes, as well as to find all the links to follow us on your favorite podcast apps so you don't miss an episode. Don't forget to follow me on TikTok and Instagram at Dr. Kate Balistrieri for daily tips on how to improve your mental health, sex, and relationships. Everyone has questions. You are not alone. On this show, I make information accessible because everyone deserves to have more integrated, healthy, and sexually satisfying relationships. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Hi, thanks for joining me today on this first episode of Modern Intimacy. I'm so excited to be here with you for this inaugural episode and thought I might start by telling you a little bit about myself and why I started this podcast. Psychology is my second career. I started out as a working professional selling employee benefit health plans many years ago. And while I loved the work, I really felt it wasn't my true calling. So I decided to pursue a degree in psychology. And while I was finishing my undergraduate degree in psychology, I really fell in love. From that first class, I realized this was going to be the career for me and would take me through the duration of my professional years. So I hunkered down and decided to pursue a master's degree in clinical psychology and a doctorate in clinical psychology. And it was in those final years of training in my doctoral program that I decided to start my clinical training in the world of forensic psychology. So if you're not familiar with what forensic psychology is... 
It essentially means that a clinician focuses on practicing their niche in the field of psychology anywhere where the world of psychology meets the world of the legal system. So that can look like a provider practicing within the court systems, within correctional systems, or working to help with other kinds of civil or criminal cases within the context of some kind of legal evaluation. There are lots of ways for practitioners in the field of psychology to work within a legal context. And that's really where I cut my teeth in this field. My earliest clinical experiences were in various prison systems, working with adolescents and adults of all genders in different correctional contexts and facilities. Throughout that time, I spent the bulk of my efforts working with people who were extremely high-risk populations, including sex offenders and non-sexual violent offenders. I've worked with people who had short durations in a correctional system, as well as life sentences, and even some people on death row. Working in a correctional context really gave me such incredible insight about why human beings do the most malevolent things that they do, as well as the importance of resilience and functional rehabilitation on helping people reacclimate back into the world after an incarceration. But most of all, it really provided for me a fascinating lens through which to see the implications of trauma, poverty, racial injustices, and so many other ills that plague our society. And it gave me a chance to really understand how we marginalize folks. Probably one of the most interesting takeaways from my time working in correctional settings was revisiting the issue of stigma. For so many inmates, there are mental health, medical health, poverty-related issues, race-related issues that compelled what I would call survival-based behaviors. It is those survival-based behaviors that at times led to breaches in the law. Now, I'm not condoning illegal behavior, but it started to give me a better understanding of what compelled illegal or otherwise socially unacceptable behavior. And I started to more fully understand the role that trauma, financial insecurity, racism, and other sorts of structural and systemic problems had on people's overall development. There were so many different kinds of trauma that I hadn't been trained to think about in graduate school that once I started working with incarcerated people, really started to make a lot more sense. Now, certainly systemic and structural forms of marginalization are not limited to people who are incarcerated, but working with that population really was a, a very focused microcosm of society at large. And when we think about Jungian shadow work, for example, we start to recognize that collectively as a society, we are very eager to blame all of the ills of society on the people who often have the least opportunity to get ahead in life. After several years working in the prison systems, I started to long for a more connected role with society. And just as the people who are incarcerated start to feel isolated from the rest of the world, because they are, 
a lot of the providers and officers who work in that context also experience isolation. And with that, I started to explore working in private practice. And at the time, I lived in Chicago and I started a private practice downtown. It was such a tremendous balance working both in the correctional world and in the private practice world. And that sparked for me just an insatiable desire to do this work even more deeply. And working in private practice settings gave me a lot more flexibility and creativity to work with people on really healing those deeper wounds. Don't get me wrong, there are many people who experience significant rehabilitation and healing when they're in prison, and they go on to leave very rewarding pro-social lives when they are released. However, there are many complicating variables in any correctional setting, low funding, burnout among staff, overcrowding, a dearth of resources, just to name a few, that really get in the way of the majority of people getting access to the kinds of mental health services that really would make a tremendous difference in their life, whether they were to reintegrate into society or not. I don't regret a second of my time working in those institutions because they gave me such an appreciation for mental health services in general, and also for the understanding of the role that trauma has to play on so many different domains of people's lives, whether they're incarcerated or not. So I took that understanding and decided to transition full-time into the world of private practice. And along the way, I worked part-time at different treatment centers and residential settings, but always with a focus of treating trauma and looking at the role that trauma had on relationships and sexuality. As I really dove deeply into private practice in my small practice in Chicago, I started recognizing the need for a lot of containment around relationship behavior and sexual behavior as people began to get chemically sober. My practice was a few blocks away from a very prominent rehabilitation center in Chicago, and I had the privilege of working with many people in early recovery. And many of them saw some big shifts in the way they related to romantic love and to sexuality as they got sober chemically. And it started me down a journey of really starting to look more at the role of compulsive sexuality, its causes, and really how to help people redevelop a healthy relationship to sex. So a few years later, I realized how much I don't love snow. And I moved from Chicago to California, where again, I worked in different treatment settings and started a private practice. From 2016 through 2020, I was co-founder of a group practice in Los Angeles. And then in 2020, when the pandemic hit, I decided to found a new practice called Modern Intimacy. Yes, that's the name of this podcast, and aptly so, because there's never been more of a need for us to talk about intimacy in a modern context. There are a lot of polarized ideas, a lot of misinformation out there in social media and on the web, and just a lot of confusion about what it means to be a healthy sexual being in this context where so many people have big opinions and there's a lot of information to wade through. So I started Modern Intimacy, the practice and the podcast 
to help provide information to people along different points of access and different points of opportunity and curiosity. Since May is both National Masturbation Awareness Month and Mental Health Awareness Month, I'd like to spend this first episode exploring the relationship between mental health and masturbation, because the relationship that we have to ourselves sexually is one that starts early. In fact, even some studies demonstrate masturbation and sexual stimulation in utero. Children are sexual creatures, even though cognitively they don't necessarily have the same focus on arousal and eroticism. Playing with the genitals feels good, and we start that from a young age. It is a healthy part of human development, and depending on the messages that we receive about that genital stimulation growing up, it can determine whether or not our mental health turns into something that is constructive or harmful and destructive. You might be wondering how some people come to develop a healthy relationship to solo sex or an unhealthy relationship to solo sex. There certainly are a lot of different ideological understandings about masturbation, although certainly not universal in all denominations or branches of the world's major religions, guilt, shame, and indulgence continue to be themes that most religions associate with masturbation. This can create a tremendous amount of fear, hesitation, and reticence for very religious folks to participate in solo sex understandably, if they believe it will displease their higher power or lead to an eternity of damnation. My thoughts here are not a condemnation of any religion, not at all. However, they are an observation of the impact that some religious teachings can have on the overall mental and sexual health of those who practice. When people are brought up with negative messages about sexuality, what is considered in scientific communities to be a biological imperative can actually create a context where people's sexual and relational human instincts are positioned to be at war with their spiritual and existential safe havens. This is a problem because some people will miss out on healthy education related to the benefits of solo sex individually within their primary relationship or in the grander scheme of things. And they can learn to develop a hatred toward their body for their body's natural desires and urges. And study after study demonstrates that prohibitions against sexuality or masturbation do not, in fact, thwart sexual desire. In fact, in many cases, they exacerbate it because human beings, after all, love the taboo. So let's take a deeper look. According to one study of undergraduate students in Bangladesh, where approximately 90% of the population identifies as Muslim, masturbation is considered an impious or profane activity except within some circumstances, such as within woodlock. And while there are verses in the Bible that discuss the immorality of lust, according to BibleReasons.com, there are no specific verses that explicitly discuss masturbation as being a sin. There's only the interpretation of what the scripture may have meant. That same study of students in Bangladesh noted that Roman Catholic Eastern Orthodox and Oriental Orthodox education continues to define reproduction as the only acceptable reason for sexual activity and any other emission of semen a form of defiance. So this lens alone paints 83% of people with a penis who have had a nocturnal emission over the course of their lives to be a sinner, even though wet dreams are not conscious or intentional and often occur without a sexual or erotic dream as their impetus. 
That same study reported that those who follow the tenets of Orthodox Judaism are subject to one day of impurity and are not allowed to worship in the synagogue for one day as a penalty for masturbation. However, the teachings of Hinduism and Buddhism don't formally condemn masturbation, but those who practice Hinduism are encouraged to bathe after masturbation as a way of purification, and the teachings of Buddhism suggest finding a way to move beyond sexual desire. Again, this is not a condemnation of any religion, nor is it a completely inclusive conversation about any religion or their relationship to sexuality but rather an observation that the themes of shame and dirtiness remain cogent throughout all of these messages, and they can create a significant disconnect for people from their bodies, from their spirituality, and from their sexual health. In the United States, less than half of American schools and only one-fifth of middle schools teach all 16 sex ed topics that are recommended from the Center for Disease Control's list. Masturbation isn't even on that list, much less inclusive, in sex education. In a recent national sample of sexual behaviors in the United States, masturbation was more common than any partnered sexual behavior among 14 to 17-year-old adolescents. The study noted that the average age at the first time of masturbation among Black youth was 13.2 years old. For Latinx youth, the average was 14.5 years old. For Asian and Pacific Islander youth, the average age at first masturbation was 14 years old, and for white youth, the average age at first time of masturbation was 13.7 years old. So while it's understandable that these are sensitive topics, preventing teens from learning about sexuality does not actually prevent teens from becoming sexual. What is clear is that it only prevents teens from being smart about sexuality and masturbation leads them to peers and pornography as resources for sex education, and thwarts efforts to reduce the transmission of STIs and unwanted pregnancy. Teaching kids about masturbation would lower STI rates, raise the age at which kids have sex, and would help close the orgasm gap. Studies show that when parents talk to their kids about sex in a positive and affirming way, they tend to wait longer to have sex. Further, Teaching kids about masturbation is about more than pleasure. It's about teaching them bodily autonomy. When children and teens are given permission to masturbate in a non-shaming and even non-sexualizing way, they learn that their body is their body, that their body deserves respect, and that others need to ask for consent, just as they need to ask for consent in order to touch other people's bodies. Changing the narrative from an education that is shame-based or relationship-centered to one that is pleasure and safety-based will help children and teens develop into adults with a healthy relationship to sexuality and masturbation. It is these subtle and often concurrently implicit and explicit messages that begin to shift the social landscape away from sexual entitlement. So let's explore the benefits of solo sex, because there are many. First, Masturbation causes your brain to release a number of hormones and neurochemicals, including things like dopamine, which is one of the happiness hormones and is related to your brain's reward system. Endorphins, the body's natural pain reliever, they have a de-stressing and mood-boosting effect on the mind and body, and P.S., this can be a great reason to masturbate if you're menstruating. 
oxytocin gets released during masturbation and after orgasm. And it's sometimes called the love hormone because it's associated with social bonding and can make you feel closer to yourself or to a partner if you're engaged in parallel solo sex play. The release of oxytocin from sexual activities seems to lower stress hormones such as cortisol and promotes relaxation. One study examined the experiences of over 2,600 cisgender women and found that 39% of them masturbated to relax. Testosterone, which is released during sex and masturbation, can improve stamina and arousal. A longer refractory period may delay the opportunity for partnered sex, so timing is key. Prolactin is also released during sex and masturbation, which is a hormone that plays an important role in lactation and also influences your mood and emotional regulation. It also influences your immune system. Endocannabinoids, which are neurotransmitters, are critical in reducing inflammation, regulating metabolism, reducing blood pressure, and improving cardiovascular functioning. Endocannabinoids also play a role in a person's capacity for learning and memory, their reduction of anxiety and depression-related symptoms, and can help regulate addictive tendencies. So there's no shortage of neurochemical benefits for masturbation and sex in general. Overall, masturbating can result in a healthy release of these neurochemicals and hormones, and in addition to being fun and pleasurable, it can positively affect your mood, sleep, and your overall physical health. Solo sex also serves as an important teacher. It can help you develop a better understanding of the physical touch and stimuli that turn you on and turn you off, as well as the erotic fantasies and material that generate arousal. Knowing what's stimulating for you during solo sex can translate well into knowing what turns you on during partnered sex and can lead to more comfort in communicating your needs wants, and limits with other people in real life. However, for some people, masturbation is not all fun and games. One of the questions I get asked most frequently is, how do I know if masturbation has become unhealthy for me? The answer really is unique to each person. And there are few, if any, objective benchmarks in terms of frequency that might indicate masturbation has become unhealthy in someone's life. But there are a few things that you can consider, such as the presence of negative consequences following masturbation. Now, those might include things like debilitating guilt or shame, which is usually rooted in religious or morally negative messaging about sexuality, and it can impact a person's self-esteem or their self-perception or their sense of worth as a human or a partner. Evaluating the potential for other negative consequences of masturbation is also important to ensure that you maintain a healthy relationship with solo sex. For instance, does masturbation get in the way of other life tasks, such as maintaining appropriate hygiene, work productivity, your ability to parent effectively, or does it carry legal consequences, such as masturbating in public, for example? Is it resulting in negative relationship dynamics with your romantic partner? This may be an indication of excessive or problematic masturbation, but it may also be indicative of differing views about sexuality. Some partners may feel neglected or unattractive if their partner chooses to masturbate over the opportunity to be sexual with them over and over again. And sometimes it can lead to relational conflict. 
but working with a specialist can help you decide what constitutes different views about solo sex and how to work through them, or might be an opportunity to revisit your relationship to masturbation. Some people who masturbate excessively for their body can start to notice difficulties being sexual with partners in real life because excessive solo sex can teach your body to only become aroused to sexual activities that are solitary and introducing a partner can become a distraction or a deterrent. Excessive masturbation can lead to genital injuries or physical problems such as irritated skin, urinary tract infections, genital swelling, penile fractures, Peyronie's disease, and in some cases, sexual dysfunction, either during solo sex or partnered sex. Though visual erotica is not objectively bad, excessive consumption of some kinds of pornography can also lead to or perpetuate a mindset rooted in sexual objectification for some people. Some people with Alzheimer's disease, bipolar disorder, Pick's disease, Klein-Levin syndrome, obsessive-compulsive disorder, a history of untreated trauma, or substance use disorders related to methamphetamine or cocaine may have a higher likelihood of developing a compulsive relationship to masturbation. However, treating the underlying condition can often help the person redevelop a healthy relationship to self-love. At the end of the day, each person's relationship to solo sex is unique and theirs alone. There is no objective right or wrong amount of masturbation to aim for. The main goal with solo sex is to ensure that if you decide you want it to be a part of your life, that it remains a healthy and pleasurable part of your life, not a destructive force and not your entire universe. If you masturbate daily or even multiple times per day, that can be very healthy and does not in and of itself denote a problem. There is only a problem with solo sex if you determine there's a problem. The same is true if you decide solo sex is not for you. This is completely okay if you decide that that is what feels best for you in your body. So whatever your relationship to masturbation is currently, my hope is that this episode gives you something new to think about as you evaluate whether or not you are content with the relationship you have to solo sex and how it influences your mental health. But by all means, if there's something about this relationship between solo sex and mental health that for you feels uncomfortable, please reach out to a sex therapist so you can learn more, explore, and unpack whatever may be getting in the way of you feeling okay in your own skin. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Modern Intimacy. Feel free to check out next week's episode where we will talk about the influence of the male gaze on dating. Thanks so much for joining me today. Check out modernintimacy.com slash podcast for show notes about this episode or to leave a suggestion or a question for future episodes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Modern Intimacy. Follow our show on your favorite podcast app by going to modernintimacy.com slash podcast. And while you're there, don't forget to enter in a question or a topic idea for future episodes. That's modernintimacy.com slash podcast. This show is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for therapy or psychiatric care. Listening to this show or submitting questions or topic ideas does not constitute a therapeutic or professional relationship with Dr. Kate Balistrieri or any providers that work at Modern Intimacy. If you're having a medical or psychiatric emergency, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency room. 
All opinions expressed by guests on this show are those of the guests only and are not necessarily indicative of those opinions held by Dr. Kate Balistrieri or staff at Modern Intimacy. Thank you for listening to today's show. For more episode information and helpful tips, visit modernintimacy.com or follow us on Instagram at The Modern Intimacy or follow Dr. Kate on Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Kate Balistrieri. See you next week. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.